Greetings and welcome to the Extra Innings Podcast. I'm Ryan Divish, beat writer of the Seattle Times, hosting this little foray into baseball and whatever else we kind of do. Um, it's Friday, March 31st. That means in just a few days, the baseball season will begin. It officially starts Sunday with three games, but on Monday at Minute Maid Field in Houston, the Mariners will take the field for the first time and play a game that actually means something. I think we're all ready for that. Uh, the spring training has been long with the World Baseball Classic, uh, and, and really it's kind of drug on this last week or so. So we'll get going here on Monday, which I think everybody's excited about. Um, today, on Friday, our Mariner special preview section came out. Uh, it was a, basically a five-part series on Edwin Diaz and relieving and all these other things that go into the Mariners' closing situation. I wrote a really long story on it. Uh, we had some cool video work from Sean Quentin and Evan Wiebeck on our desk, along with Katie Cotterell, who cut up the video, and then our photographer, Ken Lambert, who took the photo uh, for the cover of it and a bunch of the photos inside of the, uh, the section online as well. And then he also shot the video. Um, we have some cool graphics. Larry Stone had a great column about Mariners relieving history and, and kind of the closers and all this other stuff. I really recommend you reading it. It was a total team effort. Uh, Rich Baudet designed the, the special section for the paper. Uh, Ed Guzman and our desk staff really edited it all together. I mean, they had to take basically what was a 4,700-word story from me and pare it down to probably about 3,700 or maybe even 4,000. I didn't do the exact word count, but I had a little diarrhea of the keyboard. Uh, and really thanks to the Mariners for making everybody accessible for all of this. Um, we were able to get guys and, and really do what we wanted to do. Um, you know, getting a lot of information. You know, the Mariners are very open in providing access to players and coaches, and the coaches and players are very receptive to interviews and talking about things. Mel Stottlemyre, uh, GM Jerry Depoto, always great talk to. So we'll go with that. Uh, we went with that, and it, it, I think it turned out well. I hope you read it. Um, just on a side note from that, I, in that story, uh, I wrote about Diaz and the process to converting him to a lever. And, and really, and that was the part we had to kind of cut out, but it, it spoke to what DePoto does and how he makes decisions. And it's, it's a collective decision. And, and Larry and I will mention this later in the, in the podcast, but he doesn't do things unilaterally. He, he takes in as much information as possible. Everyone has a voice from the baseball ops guys in the analytics office to scouts, to managers, to minor league managers, to everyone. Everyone has a voice. The, pro, the thing is, if you come with a voice, you can't come half-assed. You have to bring it. You have to bring knowledge. You can't just say, well, I just don't think he's a, a closer or I think he's better as a starter by a gut feeling. You have to have something to back it up. Jerry doesn't play that way. If you're going to talk in one of his meetings, you need to have your information and you need to bring it. So something I'll probably write a little bit more about. I've got some quotes that we didn't use or that were kind of pulled from that story that will kind of go into that decision-making. I wrote about it a little bit last year on our special section preview with the the baseball bromance of Scott Service and Jerry DePoto and the thinking behind it. But uh, anyways, we'll get through all that. We're going to, I'll go to Larry Stone here in a little bit and we'll discuss uh, basically the, the season preview, what he wrote, talk about Edwin Diaz and some other stuff. So thanks for listening. All right, let's welcome in our favorite, beloved columnist, Larry Stone. I didn't call him venerable because he thinks that means he's old. 
Uh, he is in Seattle where it's probably 40 and raining. It's 82 and sunny here. We're taping this Thursday afternoon. And so, yes, Larry, I'll be by the pool eventually here and the rest of the day. I don't know what you'll be doing. Well, it's, yeah, it's always uh, 40 and rainy. <laughs> Every day after day, it's like Groundhog's Day. But I will be joining you in sunny, warm Houston this weekend for the uh, advance, in advance of the opener on Monday. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, very, a little bit warmer, different kind of warm in Houston than here. All right, let's, uh, let's get to the news of the day. We'll get to Drew Smiley. Um, yesterday, on Wednesday, he was, the Mariners announced he'd been scratched from Friday night's outing. Um, as we're taping this, there's been no other information released other than he had a soggy arm, I guess, which is fitting for Seattle. Uh, and the hope or the plan, I think, is that we'll hear something more on Smiley on Friday. When you heard this, Larry, what was your initial reaction? My initial reaction was, uh, what the heck is a soggy arm? <laughs> but then, <laughs> I mean, I've been covering baseball a long time. I've never heard that term before, but I liked it. Uh, I think it conveyed uh, pretty well uh, an arm that was just not responding, which is very ominous at this time of year, uh, particularly with a guy that's had, that's had a history of arm problems and is being counted on as, as highly as the Mariners are counting on Smiley. It's just it's not good news. Uh, you know, maybe maybe he'll be fine, but you just don't want to hear a guy shut down uh, right before his first start of the season. No, it, it really isn't. I mean, it's the uh... – I was thinking of the old Gil Mesh dead arm or arm fatigue situation, and yeah. maybe that's kind of what it is. He has had a uh, history of shoulder issues. Um, in 2015, he had was diagnosed with a torn labrum that he actually rehabbed through. I can't, I off the top of my head, I don't remember how much he missed, but it wasn't, it was a significant amount of time. I think that's the concern here. Um, it's funny about depth with the starting with your starting pitching. It all looks good when everybody's healthy. And then once one or two guys gets hurt, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, maybe that depth isn't as great. I mean, you know, with the Mariners, I think if Heston misses a start, you go with Ariel Miranda or Chris Heston. My guess is it'll be a Miranda from what I'm hearing if they decide to do that. But all of a sudden now, you know, you kind of thought Miranda's depth for Giovanni Gallardo if he was terrible. But now it gets a little more, there's some more trepidation around the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is why I have thought from the beginning that they should not put Miranda as the lefty in the pen because they really needed him it, almost inevitable that one of the arms that one of the, the five starters was going to have some sort of issue and you'd need some depth and if it's uh, you know a month into the season and Miranda isn't stretched out anymore suddenly you have some issues uh, looks like they're going to need him far sooner than they had ever hoped they would need him he's a good you know He's a good option for a team that suddenly needs a new starter. He he had a pretty good September last year. He hasn't had a good camp, uh, but you know you can't read too much into into spring training. You know if he's if if Miranda starts a couple of games and Smiley is back after missing you know a week or two, I think you're okay. Uh, if it goes longer than that, you're right. You, know, you, you need Miranda to step up, and then you're not protected if there's another uh, problem. If Gallardo stinks or someone else gets hurt, you know, then you're dipping down to, to to Heston or Overton or somebody like that who are you know with each option, it's it's less and less of a, of a good thing. So, you know, their their depth, their their rotation depth is is okay, but it's not great. If you were the Mariners, would you even consider starting Smiley on April 6th in that first outing? 
I don't think so. At this point, yeah, you, you better err on the side of caution. It's a long, long season. One start is not going to matter that much in the big picture of 162 games. And why push it for a guy who clearly has something going on or they wouldn't have – uh, they wouldn't have shut him down. They're being very vague about what it is or even what part of the arm it is. But uh, I think at the very least, you you scratch him from, from that first start. And, you know, I think as you pointed out, uh, it is a 10-day DL now. So you could start him on the DL, and he'd, you really only have to miss one start if, if you uh, – if, if you play it right. So um, that to me would be the smart play and just hope like heck that it is only one start. You know, it, uh, it could conceivably be, be longer if he's, if he's not right. And uh, you know, we'll learn a lot when we find out what the doctor said. Yeah. You know, even if it's a, a relatively optimistic turn and a diagnosis, I think you, you leave him here in Arizona. He continues to work out here. Uh, he misses the first start. Maybe he comes back for that second one, which would be, uh, in Seattle, uh, if not, you know, it, it's again, you know, I don't want to go like all oh, Lloyd McClendon and say you have to be willing to lose a game to win three down the road, but you push Drew Smiley too far and he's not ready to go, uh, and then he gets hurt down the road. That's catastrophic to your rotation, yeah. And I think what what's most uh, troubling, I think, from the Mariners' standpoint, is that he had looked so good this spring at times. Mm-hmm. You know, early in the spring, cer- certainly in the WBC game, I don't think anyone came away from that game not thinking, "Wow, the Mariners might have really got something here." You know, throwing ninety four, ninety five, mowing down. Uh, who was that against? Was it Dominican? Uh, uh, Venezuela, because he was pitching against Felix. Venezuela. That's right. Mowing down Venezuela. A tough lineup, uh, you know, a guy who's always been highly touted, highly thought of, has never been able to put it together. And, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe they really stole this guy from, from Tampa Bay and he's going to solidify that rotation. And, uh, you know, it still could happen. It's not to say it's not going to happen, but everything almost that's happened since then has been discouraging. When he came back and got lit up. And now, and now he's got the soggy arm. Yeah, I, you have to. I mean, you have to wonder if if the WBC and the odd schedule played a factor in that. He basically went ten days without a true game situation, or nine days without a true game situation, and then pitched in the WBC, and then came back. You know, it was a max effort game. Then he came back and he threw in a B game, I believe, and then against the Reds. And and the one thing was is. You know, the Reds don't have pitch tracker, so you don't know what his velocity was like, if his velocity was way down. You know, I, I didn't cover that game. Bob Condota covered it. But, you know, Smiley just kind of said he was just getting in his work and all that kind of stuff, which you hear often. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I, I do think that they can withstand this early. I guess it's probably better to have this early than midseason. But they also have, you know, like 19 division games, to, 19 out of 20, or 17 out of 20 division games to start the season. So, it is important, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Now let's get to uh, – quickly, we'll go through Dan Vogelbach and what happened here. I, you know, Larry, you were down early in the spring. You were with me in the off season when we heard Jerry DePoto and Scott Service and Andy McKay and all these guys gush over Daniel Vogelbach and how he was ready to take the next step. Uh, they basically guaranteed him a spot on the opening day roster, and I always felt like no matter how – it would have taken Vogelbach to play awful – for him not to make it just simply because, you know, they'd put so much stock into this and they were going to let him at least try it out. But he managed to not be on the opening day roster. Were you surprised when this happened? 
A little surprised because he wasn't awful. That, that's the thing. Uh, he just wasn't good enough. And uh, you know, it just adds to the sort of the skepticism that I think a few of us have had all along about Vogelbach. Uh, you know, you gave up a, a good pitcher in Mike Montgomery to, to get him on the hopes that, you know, that his minor league numbers, the, the high on base percentage, a little bit of power, you know, the, the offensive numbers are very intriguing. But then, uh, you know, the D. The defense is just not up to par. Uh, you know, to his credit, he worked hard. I talked to his brother, who's a, a trainer in Florida, who trained him all winter and yoga, and he worked hard. And he came back, and the initial word from service and everyone was like he was a new guy. But then when they sent him down, uh, service said he's still not a major league average. That's that's the, the what they're looking for, major league average first baseman. He wasn't he wasn't there yet. So that's a little discouraging. And, and you know the hitting tailed off after he got to Tacoma. Uh, you know the the no. I, I think his career numbers don't lie. I think he will eventually hit in the major leagues if he ever can get that shot. But uh, you know it's a setback for him and for the Mariners. Now you've got uh, Valencia playing every day, which I don't think is their you know that that's not what their game plan was when they they wanted this platoon. Now they're not going to have it. So uh, it's going to be on Vogelbach to keep working, keep trying to improve the uh, the defense to a point where they feel comfortable with them. I just think you know when they don't with not having the platoon and playing Valencia every day, it allowed them to go to this eight man bullpen to start the season, and you know their versatility is a lot better. You, you're not going to need a pinch runner late in games as often. Uh, I think in that way, and I, I do think Valencia is just a better player than Vogelbach right now. Uh, he hasn't shown it this spring per se, but uh, you know he played okay when you were down here. And then the last, you know, the last ten to twelve days, they were just really bad. I think when you, you see that he has nineteen strikeouts, which is something that was uncharacteristic of him in his career numbers in terms of that percentage, that was alarming. Uh, you know, Scott Service was frustrated that his inability to hit fastballs, which, you know, they wanted him to do more. And then in the last couple of games, some of the, the defensive miscues of just pure fundamentals. Like, so there were, tw I think it was twice in two games where he was late to being the cutoff man on a throw home. And so you're watching this throw get sent home, and all of a sudden you see Vogelbach sprinting as fast as he can to the cross the diamond to try and get this cutoff throw, which he missed both times. And all I could think of is the beginning scene of Tommy Boy when he's late for the test and he's running through the quad, <laughs> plowing through people. Because that's what that's how Vogelbach is running. His arms are going crazy, and I was laughing. Of course, I was laughing because I'm I'm mean, but yeah, I I think something like that where you know he's not getting to a cutoff play on a basic play. You know, that's, I think, what helped solidify their decision and just said, look, all right, kid, go back down to AAA and, and, you know, figure it out. And that's not a death sentence by any means to go to AAA. No, I mean, he'll be up at some point, but, I mean, he, he does look like Chris Farley. He, you yes. know, even, uh, <laughs> I think we've all thought that yeah. uh, from the uh, from the first day. Uh but uh, now I've lost my train of thought. Um, you know, they, this, this kind of leaves them – they're not going to have a left-handed bat off the bench, are they? At, at, I mean, the way it's, if, if, if it's Mater and Heredia and, uh, you know, Ruiz as their bench with an eight-man uh, bullpen, that, that, that kind of seems like it would hamper services flexibility. Uh, you know, I think uh, – am I wrong on that or is there – No, you're, there you're right. There isn't a guy, I guess – 
maybe in the games if there was a left-handed starter and they don't start Dyson that he would be your left-handed bat off the bench, but they don't unless they were to keep Ben Gamble. I mean, and, and I guess that's a possibility. That's why we kind of thought that Sean O'Malley still had a chance a little bit is because he was a switch hitter. But, you know, they, they are a little hamstrung in that way, and, that, and I'm sure they're looking at who they could possibly face down the road where they might need that left-handed hitter. But, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting situation that, you know, you, you lay out all these plans and have these ideas, and then things don't go right. I mean, Drew Smiley's hurt. Dan Vogelbach, um, you know, performed so poorly they had to send him down to AAA, and now your roster is a lot different than when you thought it would be when the season's going to open. Right, and I think now we've got a uh... – watch and see if the uh, the DePoto factor comes into play. You know, last year at this time is when he picked up Vincent. Uh, you know, it would not surprise me, and I'm sure it would not surprise you if if they either, you know, they, a left-handed bat or a uh, reliever or a starter could all be in play, you know, with late pickups of guys who are cut, you know, guys who are DFA'd or waived or whatever. Uh, I would, matter of fact, I'd be surprised if – there was not somebody on the opening day roster who's not in the organization as we speak. Oh no, I'm frankly, and I'm in, I'm anticipating that to happen because it's Jerry, and he hasn't made a move in about two weeks. So yes, I'm I'm anticipating that. <laughs> yeah, they, the, the guy they picked up from the Dodgers, I think, was the was the last uh, uh, the last trade that they made. Um, Got to get that trade fix in. It's like you know, it's like <laughs> me down here getting my in and out every once in a while. You Got to get it in. Exactly. All right, let's um, let's move to our special section that is debuting. Uh, first part of it came out today, Thursday. Uh, I think it was my three reasons why the Mariners will win and three reasons why they will lose. And one of the reasons I said they will lose is starting pitching depth um, and questions about the starting staff. So you know what? Just call me smart. All right. Um, but uh, the the premise of the the um, special section, I wrote a very long takeout on Edwin Diaz, and we did basically something on Mariners closers. So we'll, uh, we'll get to uh, Larry's column first. Larry wrote about a history of Mariners closers, um, a, you know, a bunch of misfit toys cast in that role from the, the very beginning of this organization. Right now, we, 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 we would agree that Kazuhiro Sasaki was the best closer they've ever had, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, J.J. Uh, puts in his uh, good year, <laughs> in his year, good year, <laughs> he had a couple of good years where you know he was uh, he was an all star. Brandon League made the all star team as a closer. Uh, Shigatosi Hasegawa made the all star team as a closer one year. People forget that. Shiggy in two thousand one, uh, wasn't it? Yeah, he was sort of. A, I think he only lasted half a year as a closer. Yeah, you know, someone someone should do a timeline of the closers. It's amazing the uh, uh, how often they t- turned over and the twists and turns. You know, Brandon Morrow was in there. Uh, I, uh, I'll never forget being in Texas. Uh, I always seem to be there during the closing meltdowns, you know, even though I wasn't the beat writer. I was yeah. filling in for Finnegan or for Baker. Um, but he he blew back-to-back nights uh, and just the, the, the pain on his face. I'll, ne- I'll never forget that. they had. This was a year when they were contending, I think. And uh, he, uh, uh, Brandon, who was far better suited as a starter than as a closer or a reliever, um, and then there was the the Brandon League. Uh, you and I were both on that trip, I think, where he blew no, that was just game. you. It was in it was in a okay. Cleveland or DC Cleveland, where he blew three yeah. in a row. 
yeah, yeah. Well, it started in Seattle, and then they went on the road. On the <laughs> last day of the homestand, he blew it, and then he, the first day of the road trip, and then the next day. I, I remember reading like it was the worst week a closer had ever had in the history of baseball. Someone did the research on it. Uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a sordid history of Mariner closers, which I which I looked at uh, sort of a little tongue-in-cheek, but also with some seriousness. And then I brought it back to Diaz in the hopes that he – uh, can end that, and and he certainly has the stuff and the makeup to be a long-term solution. But the thing about closers is, it's you can think long-term, but it's amazing how uh, often it turns into short-term. Because uh, other than uh, Hoffman or Rivera, it's very rare that you have a ten-year long-term closer. It's just not the nature of the position. Fun, fungible is the uh, word that you keep hearing. You know, you just you just replace guys. Uh, you know, you take a hard-throwing arm and throw him in there for a couple of years till he burns out, and then you get another one. You know, I think Diaz can be better than that. I think he could be there for five or more years, but we'll see. Yeah, it's it's really odd the, the way that the, there just, there has been no consistency. And every time you think that the Mariners have found a closer, they've imploded. Uh, you know, they they thought that, you know, they thought League was going to be that guy because he had all the stuff in the world and mentally he mm-hmm. was kind of a midget and, you know, he just couldn't handle. And, you know, the whole moral thing, Bill Bavese and Mike Hargrove and, and those guys, when they made that decision to convert that kid to a reliever, that was one of the dumbest things they've ever done. Yeah. It was just stupid. It was. And then, um, you know, Tom Wilhelmson, I mean, there was, what, what did he say, 17 in a row at one point and hadn't allowed a run. Right. But then when he finally started to give up, give up and lose, or not give up, but start losing, blowing some saves, and then his confidence just went down the toilet. I mean, you remember that look on his face he would get when he would get on the mound and things started going wrong? And I, for whatever reason that year, you seemed to be on that trip. Well, I don't know if you were in Cleveland when he dropped the ball covering first and blew a game. I was there, and then we went to Pittsburgh, remember? Yeah. And, uh, didn't he have a blow-up there? Yeah, and then we were also in Minneapolis when he had that one blow-up, too. And you know, yeah. Tom didn't handle those blow-ups well when we'd have to talk to him about that. <laughs> no, there's nothing as a beat writer, you know, that uh, that crudge across the locker room to the closers just giving up two runs in the bottom of the ninth to blow a lead. Uh and then for maybe the second or third night in a row, those are never fun. You know, you could tell, you actually could tell a lot about a person by uh, by how they handle those. You know, you know the the Eckers. I'll never forget Eckersley was the best ever. That just shows how old I am. But you know, I covered him in his heyday in the uh, 1980s and early 90s. You know, after he after he gave up the Gibson home run to lose lose a World Series game, he he. he stood there and and wave after wave after wave of reporters and he was you know he never wavered he never uh snapped at anybody he was he was the best at that and you know yeah certainly uh, it's understandable to be cranky and and upset but you know you kind of have to deal with that as a closer and and the good ones know how to how to handle that and they stand up to it yeah well uh, covering Eckersley doesn't make you look old it, it's just I would say the hairline you know that helps a little bit the gray hair and the beard you know that that also makes you look yeah. old too um, that's what little hair there is left anyway <laughs> when we went to I, I know you talked to Jerry for your column and then I talked to him talk about a guy that can geek out about closing I mean it was crazy just how closing and relievers and bullpen setup I mean he'll go just off and he'll just keep talking about it, won't he? Yeah. Matter of fact, uh, 
it was I started to talk to him about an article I did on the the big three and what had happened to them and we talked you know we had a good talk about that for about 10 15 minutes and then I switched to the bullpen you know thinking it would just be one question and we ended up talking for another 15 20 minutes and I at the end I thanked him for his time and he goes oh no problem I love talking about the bullpen it's my favorite topic that's what he said he says it's my favorite topic because he's done a lot of thinking about how to construct a bullpen he's done a lot of analysis and study uh this is not just off the top of his head stuff he's he's looked into you know where how closers evolve how to spend your money uh in building a bullpen and that sort of thing so you know it's just a, just as an aside it's just a different mariner organization now it's a lot more i've said this before of a thinking man's organization in a way they weren't under under uh, jack z um, they believe in the analytics and the analysis and that sort of thing, and they use it to uh, to inform their decisions. It's not a be-all, end-all, but you know, in this day and age, you, you have to. You know, the previous regime gave lip service to it, but they really—I don't think they believed in it or even fully understood it in a way that they do now. Yeah, you know, Jerry, basically, and I'm sure I, I know you've got some notes because you're going to write this about bullpen construction, but. You know, in talking with Jerry, it, you know, as a, a guy that was a reliever and sat in the bullpen and was in there for hours, I think every kind of thing he ever wondered about the bullpen and how it was set up and every experience he had from the setups of the bullpens on the teams he was on to the teams he faced, the closers and all that stuff, once he got to become a scout and then a GM, he just went and analyzed it. So everything he ever wondered about, he researched. And I think that's what's interesting, you know. And, and you're right, his thinking on, a, on, a, on closers and how you spend your money – it's, I think it's safe to say, and we'll both say this, that the Mariners, at least with Jerry DePoto as a general manager, are never going to go out and spend $80 million on a closer. I just don't see that ever happening in the way that he thinks about it anyways. No, what he, the point he made to me was that, that really the only time it's worthwhile to go get and spend money and resources on a closer is if it's the final piece you feel you need to win a World Series. I mean, he specifically mentioned the Giants and Mark Melanson. He said that's a perfect example of a team that it was wise to go out and uh, spend some money to get a closer. Um, you know, the, uh, the the Cubs with Wade Davis. Uh, those are teams where that might be the piece that puts them over the top. But, you know, I don't think that anyone could say that about the, the Mariners right now. But, you know, they have they – have, Diaz anyway, so it's a moot point, but uh, he feels that, that in the vast majority of cases, you, you evolve, you, players evolve into their closer. You get a hard-throwing guy in the minor leagues who you convert to closing, and and then you spend a couple of years letting him develop, and then you put him in the job, and then you have him for a few years, and that's, that's the way to get a closer. Uh, you know, like uh, I think he mentioned uh, Rin, uh Rendon, is that his name, or Rondon with the, the Cubs? Oh, Bruce Rondon or whatever his name is. Yeah, I can't remember. Who was their, who was their closer until they got Chapman last year. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just a lot of interesting interesting thoughts. And uh, the Mariners are lucky. They got a guy who, who has closer stuff who, you know, they didn't know how he would adapt when they moved him last year. You know, he wrote a uh, – I will plug your uh, Diaz story, which is the cover story on the uh, – in the special section, and it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic story that talks about the Mariners' process in deciding to convert him from starting to relieving and how well he took to it, which was no guarantee, but it was like 
like uh, you talked to some of his teammates about how it was almost instantaneous down in Double A. Like, like he found he found his home. It was it was perfect for him, and he threw harder than he ever had, and he had the right mentality. So the Mariners are, are lucky there. It doesn't always work that way. And as long as he stays healthy, uh, there's no reason why he can't be one of the good ones for for quite a few years. Yeah, I. I... I mean, thanks for the, the the compliments. The story is is um, Tolstoy in length. Uh, it, it you know, but it uh, you're right. I think the way that they they went about this is that you know, and, and the backstory about them at the winter meetings, and then you know the continued debate about this speaks to what Depoto believes in and how he operates decisions. But but also the way they did it, like they it was scheduled. They did it all this way. If you recall, when, when Jack Sorensic in the previous regime decided to switch Brad Miller to outfield or Cattell Marte to outfield, it was just kind of half-assed. You know, They didn't really commit to it. Oh, we'll play him here one day and we'll work him out here. Like with the Mariners and, and, a, and a reliever and Diaz, they scheduled it out like they were converting him in spring training and did all these different things and, and had it all set up in like a whole like list of detailed ways, even down to how they were going to tell him, which was let him pitch two innings, pull him, and then after the game, let him know this is what they're going to do. You know, I went to discussions with his GM or with his agent telling him that they'll, they won't switch him back and forth. It'll be conversion once. If it doesn't work, he can go back to starting. All these different things. There was forethought to it. And I think a lot of times in the past transitions, whether it's player, position player or reliever to pitcher or, you know, reliever to starter, starter reliever, there wasn't that forethought. It's like, okay, let's do it, but how are we going to do it, you know? Uh, if you recall that one year with Michael Morris when they were going to make him an outfielder and they brought Jay Buhner down to help him. And basically all it was was just Jay talking to him and they'd still play Morris a bunch of innings at first base and third base. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, learning how to play the outfield is an osmosis from Jay's bald head. You know, it's just not how it works. It's You've got to put in the time. I think they do a better job of that. They did that, you know, it's, it's instructive to mention that Dan Altavilla was a starter in the minor leagues, and they converted him as well last year and made the same thing. They did that immediately with Altavilla, uh, whereas Diaz, there was some debate because, you know, Diaz had a little bit more cachet. It's like, you know, it's one thing to change Dan Altavilla, who hadn't projected much of anything, uh, but when you're changing you're changing Edwin Diaz, who's legitimately your top pitching prospect in the organization, regardless of how poor the organization is in prospects. It's a decision that just isn't taken lightly. And so I think that's one thing I kind of learned that I, and I understood it, uh, is that how they go about the decisions, it's not simple. You know, it's not unilateral. It's not just DePoto saying it. He takes in a lot of information from everybody else. And then they kind of make an organizational decision about how they want to do it. Yeah, I mean, that is a big change from the previous regime, which often seemed to do things just on the seat of their pants and on the fly. You know, they'd have one uh, organizational uh, core philosophy, and then it wouldn't work. You know, the season would get off to a bad start, and they'd switch philosophies right yeah. in, mid, in midstream. And, uh, you know, the examples you gave her are, are just right. They just uh, they, they didn't have a, the same sort of... Uh, coherent vision that this one does and you know they're only in their second year and if things don't go well we'll see how they'll react and if they'll be steadfast and 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 stay with their beliefs uh but uh at least for now uh you know it looks like it looks like they are thinking these things through a little more clearly than they did in the past when you were going back and looking through the the old closers and stuff 
were you surprised at any of the numbers or anything like stand out to you when you're looking at some of those guys and the names? I mean, Everyday Eddie, Gardado, Mike Schooler, Mike Jackson, Heathcliff Slocum. Oh. Murderous uh, Row right there. Yeah, no, it, nothing Nothing surprised me. Um, just it was it just it was a flood of memories because I've, you know, I've been here since uh, covering the Mariners now since 97. Old. Which was, <coughs> old. Which was the, yeah, old. What's depressing is that I was already 20 years into my career, so that's really old. But uh, uh, that was the year that, that uh, I mean, that was a team that had, you know, they set the major league record for home runs that still stands. So, I mean, this was an amazing offensive ball club with Junior and A-Rod and Buner and Edgar and Sorrento, I think, was on that team. Uh, so, I mean, it could bash like nobody's business, but they, 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 the closing was undermining the season. And so they made the, the panic move of all panic moves, which was uh, – they had their top prospect was Jose Cruz Jr. They traded him to Toronto for Mike Timlin and Paul Splagerick. And if they had stopped there, I think they would have been fine. Timlin could have been the closer. I'll never, never understand why they made the second move after that and traded uh, um, Derek Lowe and uh, why am I having Jason Veritek, the captain. Jason Veritek uh, for, for Heathcliff uh, Slocum, who became their closer. Did a decent job down the stretch. They lost in the first round of the playoffs to the Orioles. Slocum stunk the next year and was released and was never heard from again. And Veritek became the beloved captain of the Red Sox. And low in the year they finally won the World Series in 2004, he won every clinching game in the playoffs, all three of them, including the World Series, and was a great Red Sox for many years, both a closer and a starter. So, uh, uh, you know, that was a classic example of how the bull, how the closing situation undid the Mariners and then from there it just was it pretty much has been a trouble spot ever since with a few pockets of success that we've mentioned before but you know Jose Mesa was a disaster uh every oh, day man. he was he was beyond you know he was a great closer with the twins and he had his moments but he was he, you know, he's one of my favorite guys I've ever covered so I don't want to disparage him but he was past his prime when the when the Mariners got him and uh, you know we haven't even gotten into your your guy Fernando Rodney <laughs> and, and that whole uh, the, the uh, Fernando Rodney experience for a year and a half uh, you know Ugh. Smith if you talk about guys who look like the prototype I was always a big Carson Smith guy, but he had trouble in back-to-back nights, and uh, I think his his motion was some people already had some red flags out for him, and sure enough, he didn't pitch last year. Um, I haven't checked to see if he's back with the Red Sox healthy again this year or not, but, uh, you know, he had tremendous stuff, but, uh, you know, he he didn't cut it. Uh, health-wise. I liked Carson, He although he trolls me on Twitter because he must have a search on his name or something or he still follows me because I mentioned that he struggled against lefties and he goes, and he always sends the 227 batting average back at me and what I want to say is, look, that's all well and good, but that doesn't reflect how many times your pitch count got bolstered up or, you know, you throw 15 pitch or 12 pitches to a batter because they're fouling off balls to a lefty and they roll it up, you know, seven lefties in a row. I thought the Astros really gave him trouble with that. Uh, but yeah, no. So I, I want Carson to do well because he's a nice kid. Uh, that, yeah. tr- that trade was a 
bad trade for well, bad trade for all involved. I don't think anybody got anything <laughs> out of it. Um, but trade that helped nobody. Yeah, classic. Although I still think you know Carson's young and he could still come back and help the help the Sox. Oh yeah, I definitely think so too. He's, yeah, I th- I, as far as Diaz goes, I think that you know he embraces it like you you i know depoto talked about it with you and and he talked about it with me is just and you mentioned it is it's how you react to to blowing a game when you screw up a game and you have to go back in the next day and see all those guys' faces and you know that you were the reason that they you know lost in the last inning you know that's hard to do and it wears on some people i think diaz because he's so confident isn't afraid of that and we certainly know he's not afraid of anybody after watching the wbc but i think he does have the uh uh, the 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 kind of makeup that you'd like to see from a closer, the short memory, the confidence that you know this is this is how I roll and and I'll be fine. Yeah, uh, Depoto specifically mentioned the game. I think it was the second save that he blew uh, against Toronto, where Bautista gave up a home run. Uh, but then the Mariners came back to win it, and he was in the dugout leading the cheers, uh, and then. The first guy in the in the handshake line high five and when they came back and won the game after he had blown the the save in the ninth so you know he took that as a as a huge sign of that he had the right makeup uh, for the for the job and um, you know it is it is true that how you handle the blown saves tells as much as how you handle the the high points because you know Mariano Rivera on down, you know, he blew seven, the seventh game of a World Series uh, against Arizona. Uh, he blew a, the clinching game against the Red Sox that allowed the Red Sox to come down from, come back from three games down in the year they won the World Series. So, uh, you know, even Mariano Rivera had had blown saves, but, but, but he handled them, and the great ones do that. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really interested to see how the season unfolds with Diaz. I think, you know, the, the guys leading up to him maybe more of a question than him himself, and I wonder how they'll space it out so they don't, you know, wear him down. He is not, you know, he's still trying to figure out uh, how to make it through a full season. He, they admitted he tired at the end of last season, and he admitted it as well. You know, and it's another thing is there, there, he's going to be asked to do more now. It's, the situations are different, and I was talking with Steve, Steve Ciszek about that, that, that you're not always going to feel right when you go out there, but you have to go out and take the ball. You can't, you know just because you're not feeling like you have your best stuff or whatever, you can't say, no, I can't go this day when you're the closer, you got to go. So I think Diaz will be able to handle it. I think he'll be better. He won't kill me at deadlines like Fernando Rodney. Um, and you like, you talked about the, uh, the being able to look at the, you know, walk away from a loss and a blown save and forget. I think that was Wilhelmson's biggest problem is like the moment things started to go wrong, all those times he'd blown a save would enter his mind again. You know, it's just like, Oh no, here we go again. And you can't have that mindset as a closer because you know, like I'll say this about Fernando Rodney, that guy could walk the bases loaded and he, all he'd think to himself is if I just get a strikeout and a ground ball, I'll be fine. Like he always believed he would get out of that situation you know, I, I think some other guys, once they've had failure, they don't believe that. That's why Fernando Rodney has lasted and my teams continue to want him is because he had that mindset. He'd drive you crazy, but he had supreme confidence. And, and uh, you know, uh, I'll never forget Rod Beck, the late, great Rod Beck. The shooter. Uh, the shooter, yeah. I co- Another age thing, but uh, I covered him. 
uh, early in his career as a closer, and he's the one who told me, I'll never forget that, he said it's like 90%, it's 90% attitude when you go out there. It's like he, he had that that swagger and that confidence, cockiness, and uh, even when he lost his stuff, he he felt that he could get him out on just on on attitude alone, and uh, you know it doesn't last forever. But um, you know I think uh, Diaz has some of that. He he has a little bit of an edge, and you know that whole incident with uh, uh, in the um, uh, with Valentine in the WBC kind of shows that uh, that he's got that attitude. You know you write about that too in your story a lot. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff you like to see, particularly from a young guy who's uh, just coming up. That usually it, it may take some time to develop that, but he's, he's got it from the beginning, so uh, that bodes well. All right. The other part of our our special section is predictions, and I also do the the prediction deal where we get all of our other writers, and I put embarrassing photos up. Some people complain that it's stupid. I don't care. I like doing it. I like making fun of my people I work with. So, and you know, it's supposed to be fun. Damn it. You know, sometimes. Not everything about, you know, baseball is supposed to be fun. Those predictions are are fun. None of us know any more than anybody else. It's all a crapshoot, but we'll do that. So let's get into your predictions first. We'll go with the Mariners. How many wins do you think the Mariners will have this season? Uh, well, you know, I haven't filled out your thing yet. I think. I've well, yeah, but you had to fill one out. Oh, yeah. Well, you better get on that, by the way. Way to be a slacker. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll say it. I'll say I think 88 is what I'll probably go with. Okay. Um, if I change it, don't hold me to it because I'm just I haven't thought it out yet. But uh, you know I I have enough questions at, about the, the 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 rotation to to keep from going 90 or above. But I think they have a lot of good things going for them. You know if if they go out and make an impact trade on uh, July in July, that could change things. Um, uh, you know, I could certainly see things breaking right for this team and winning in the 90s. I could see, see I, I could see it the other way, but I think they're going to be a high 80s team, which will come, you know, could very well get them in the, finally get them in the playoffs. So you don't think that wins the division, though? 88 doesn't win the division. No, I'm, I'm picking the, I'm, I'm picking the Astros to win the division. I'm picking the Mariners to finish ahead of the, the Rangers, though, the two-time defending champions who won 95 games last year. I just don't see them. Being as strong, I think they've got some pitching issues of their own. I think some of their guys are getting a little bit older. You know, they don't have Ben uh, Fielder this year. For, for, uh, not that they really uh, got much from him last year before he got hurt, but um, uh, I, I think that the Astros are the clear-cut class of the division, but I think the Mariners are good enough to, to get the wild card. I don't like the Astros pitching very much either, but I still I would pick them to win. Just their you know their lineup. I mean, the Mariners' first five guys are are pretty damn good, and, and you know I I just have questions about the pitching just as much as I would about the Astros pitching. Lance McCullers never pitches a full season. He hasn't. You know, Maris for some reason can't figure out how to hit Colin McHugh, although he's not in the in their rotation yet because of injury. And Dallas Keuchel wasn't very good last year either. So they have just as many. I wonder though if 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 Houston struggles early, if they're willing to end up giving up the prospects to get Jose Quintana. I mean, they had the deal before, and if they get him, then that changes the entire division if they get that guy. It does, and I yeah, I expect them to do that because don't forget they ended up getting uh, a couple of high draft picks from St. Louis in that, uh, you know, that um, – uh, Oh, the hacking deal? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, 
I felt for, right from the beginning that that was going to be what got him Quintana because now you could give up some young guys and have the extra draft picks to, to make up for it. So, you know, he could be the difference maker. Uh, I'm sure the White Sox are holding out for they're, – they're more than willing to hold out till the trade deadline and, and get some desperate teams. And, you know, they're, they're, they've done a pretty good job of uh, of – maximizing the talent that they've traded away in sale and uh, and the other guys that they've traded and a lot of people think they're they're not far away from being a great team and if they could finish that with a with a haul for Quintana uh you know look out for the White Sox so that's that's definitely something to watch we'll we'll save the uh, other previews the other predictions cuz I don't really have my Cy Young and all that stuff so we'll save that we'll do a whole prediction show so I'll give you you can get your yeah. picks in and we'll go from there and I'll let you go because yeah. Really, I just want to go outside because it's 80 degrees and I'm stuck inside a condo right now. Oh. Well, yeah, I think we've uh, we, we've been going at it for like 40 minutes. I don't know if anyone wants to hear us talk for any longer than that. So, no, no. Uh, we'll, we'll get them next time. Yeah, and I will see you in Houston. Prepare yourself for Shake Shack in the outfield. That's going to be big for us. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think I've ever been to Shake Shack, so oh. we'll, uh, we'll have to rectify that. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. That was the Extra Innings Podcast. Thanks again to our house band, Midnight Salvage Company out of Tacoma, for providing the uh, intro music and the bumper music in between segments. If you ever want to send in your own band's MP3s to play on this, we'll definitely do that. You can email them to me at rdivish at Seattle Times or contact me at rdivish Seattle Times, and we'll, we'll do that, or even hit me up on Twitter at Ryan Divish. Uh, thanks to Larry Stone for coming on. Thanks to our staff, again, for helping put together the Edwin Diaz and, and the Mariners spring preview or season preview section. It really, there were a lot of hours put into it and a lot of people contributed. Uh, and until then, I will try and do something later this week with previewing the Astros and then go from there. Thanks for listening. <laughs>